Hello, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Ray Dooley. Hello, Ray. Hello, gentlemen. Good to be here. It's good to have you. Ray Dooley has more than 40 years of professional acting experience that has spanned film, television, stages, national and international, with extensive work in the plays of Shakespeare. He won a Village Voice Obie Award for Distinguished Performance in Pierre Gint at the CSC Repertory Company in New York City and played Malcolm in Nicole Williamson's Macbeth at Circle in the Square. He's also appeared at major regional theaters, including Yale Rep, Hartford Stage, Seattle Rep, The Huntington, Alliance Theater in Atlanta, The Folger, Center Stage Baltimore, and on and on and on. At the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, Professor Dooley teaches acting in the Professional Actor Training Program and has taught numerous acting and dramatic literature courses for undergrads. As a company member with Playmakers Rep Company, the professional theater in residence at the UNC Chapel Hill, Ray has appeared in more than 90 productions since 1989. Holy moly, Ray. That is a massive resume. It's been a long time. Ray, you've been at this a a while. For the sake of my students who are just starting their careers, what was your first uh, introduction to professional acting? Oh, my goodness. Well, I had the great fortune to grow up uh, in the New York area. So the answer to that question may truthfully be the day they put us on the bus for a field trip and took us to the Brooklyn Academy of Music, where we saw Peter Brook's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Wow, that very famous production. What year was that? Indeed. That would have been 1970. And did you realize right then that that was going to be the direction your career would take? It was astonishing. And also during my high school career, I would get on the first the bus, then the subway, and go down to the village to see the original CFC Repertory Company under Christopher Martin's direction. And for example, one season, they were doing in rep something like Hamlet, Uncut Hamlet, Uncut Man and Superman, a four-hour production of Moby Dick, Poor Beatles a play about the French Revolution. That, it was an extraordinary company, and it was a true repertory company uh, of about 12 people. And this, this, again, is 69, 70, 71. And that aesthetic of a small stage, not a lot of furniture, I, I later had the great privilege of working with Chris in the CSC company. And one of the great things, if you have three lights on the stage, you learn how to stand still. Because <laughs> if, you, if, if you move, you will be out of your light. So... That was very formative in my early, early years. Wow. And did you get your start as a professional actor uh, around that time after high school? Uh, No, no. I went on for undergraduate liberal arts studies at Hamilton College in upstate New York, double majored in English literature and in um, the department that was known as theater and drama. Mm -hmm. And that started my love or really solidified my love of literature. And as an actor, one of my driving forces is the ability to live inside of great literature. Mm. And from right from undergraduate school then to uh, ACT in San Francisco in the height of the Bill Ball years and mm. had the, the amazing experience of being in the advanced training program with great directors like Bill himself and Alan Fletcher, Jack O'Brien and others coming through. And uh, I was part of a company that was, uh, I believe, about 45 equity actors and about 80 students in the conservatory. Wow. But yes, it was an extraordinary experience and very formative, a different kind of experience from the CSC company that I would go to see early. So both of those, the great bravura productions at ACT and also the very small but punching way above their weight productions that Chris uh, would do at CSC were both part of my formative experience. Then after that, I went back and got a job 
my first uh, professional job was in Summerstock in Dial M for Murder. So that brings it all back home. <laughs> At ACT, how big was your cohort? We're talking about 60 in the first year, and then that would be reduced to 20 in the second year. And then three, four, or five would then be invited for another year on the old journeyman contract, which I don't know if it exists anymore. I don't think so. In the second year, we were in the crowd, and my ACT debut was as Brabantio's servant <laughs> and Cypriot soldier in Alan Fletcher's really wonderful production of Othello, starring John Hancock as Othello and Daniel Davis as Iago. Uh, and that was an eye-opener standing 15 feet away from Danny Davis playing Iago just, and going, oh, that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that. just amazing. Yeah, amazing yeah, training. Yeah. Ray, you've been around for a while and you have a uh-huh. really unique perspective because not only have you been acting with actors for 40 years, you've been training actors for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost, almost 30, yes. So what changes have you seen take place during your career as an actor in terms of the theater? Obviously, size, the size of cast would be one, but what, what other changes have you seen take place? Uh, well, many. Uh, let's see. What's wrestling in my mind is that there are many things that haven't changed, which is to say the love of the work, that it is a place where you can dedicate yourself and, and learn so much about yourself. But with the, uh, particularly, of course, of course, of course, with the advent of so much work now being done on camera, unless you're, you're going to plan a career in ele- elevator repair service or one of the great device work companies, we all will have our opportunities to work b- before the camera. And so any responsible training ought to include work before the camera. But for all the reasons of time immemorial, the, the work that nourishes the actor's soul it was still the great works of literature, both the classic ones and the, and the new ones that are coming and that, that w- will uh, join the, quote, canon, unquote, as we move forward uh, with a much more diverse series of voices coming forward. And at the same time, touching and keeping our students in touch with what makes particularly the works of Shakespeare great and how each person can intersect with the amplitude and the generosity that exists in Shakespeare's work. I'm fascinated by the word amplitude. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, that those things that we may feel every day on a limited level, if you engage into the world that Shakespeare presents, you can, as they say in um, in that, um, yes, that movie, the names go first, guys. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you can turn the dial up to 11. Spinal tap. Thank you. In terms of, what we are presented with and what we experience as human beings. If you enter into the world that Shakespeare presents, you are more articulate than you will ever be in your life again, which is a wonderful way of putting reality into words. Oftentimes you're asked to engage in rigorous physical activity and you're stretched intellectually, physically, emotionally, spiritually, every possible way you can engage. And it if you're playing one of the great roles, you know, you give it everything you have and the role says, well, thank you very much. Good try. <laughs> try again tomorrow. Right, and, exactly. and, and, and of course, as an actor, the great joy is being able to, to use everything, all of who you are, all of your life experience, all of your training to bring it all to bear on a particular role. And sometimes the smaller roles as well. You're playing John of Gaunt and Richard II. 
good luck. Let's turn to Shakespeare, and you've chosen to do Act One, Scene Two of The Tempest, Prospero. Yes. Before we dive yes, into the scene, into the scene itself, just a little background on the Tempest. Where is it situated in in the canon? It's at the at the very end. It is considered to be the last of the four great romances: Pericles, Cymbeline, Winter's Tale, and then The Tempest. People, uh, the cliches about it, you know, that it's Shakespeare's farewell to the theater. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's the only one of his plays that takes place in a single day. You know, he kept getting criticized, I think, by Johnson and a couple of others about how he, you know, he couldn't stick to those unities. That's professional jealousy. Yeah, you know, or he said, all right, you want one of those? Here's one of those, you know, better than anything you've ever written. You know, it's like with Hamlet, you know, you want a revenge tragedy? Yeah, okay, try this. (laughs) But of course it has some of the most transcendent poetry in it. And I pulled out a copy of an article written by John Hirsch, the great director of Stratford, Canada. It's called On Directing the Tempest. And John mentions that the, the great romances are some of the greatest plays. And we talk in my, when I, when I teach, I, we talk about what kind of play are we in. And John opens, if we have just a moment, I'll, I'll just read a little bit of what John mm-hmm. has to say, because he's much more eloquent than I am. But he says, I believe the highest creations of Shakespeare are not his histories or tragedies, but his romances. These are really fairy tales, in the sense that child psychologist Bruno Bettelheim uses the term, simple and enchanting representations of profound human experience that touch the very roots of social, religious, and individual problems. Romance draws from both comedy and tragedy. And he says romance is much closer to comedy, of course, because of the festive and comic elements that are present. But it differs, particularly in The Tempest, because of the impending darker forces and the proximity of tragedy, which does not occur only because of the influence of both natural and supernatural forces. So in these, particularly in the romances, I found it useful both in working in the plays and in when students are working in the studio on these plays to use this idea of it's a fairy tale. And, you know, once upon a time, there was a king who was jealous. If we're doing the Winter's Tale, you know, why was he jealous? Well, okay, we might look at that and see what might have gone wrong. But the point is, once upon a time, there was a king who was jealous. Now what happens? And we play it out that way. Here, once upon a time, there was a duke and his daughter marooned on a desert island. Now we play that out. What kind of a world is that? And as an actor, what we have to do is believe in the world that we're in. And sometimes using this idea that we're in a fairy tale where it doesn't actually have to make rational, logical sense, but it makes a kind of more instinctual or intuitive sense. Something that we sense is true the way we do with fairy tales, very, very deep down in our older, the older parts of our brain. And we let the rest of it go. And if we are wise enough to do that, Shakespeare will take us wherever we need to go. So back to the Duke and his daughter you alluded to. The scene that you've chosen deals with them. And it's an early scene. We get introduced to to the the situation and the characters. You might say it's an expository scene, I suppose. Tell us just a little bit about who they are. Okay. Who they are. Prospero, the banished Duke of Milan, and his daughter. And they've been on this island for 12 years. She was three when they were gathered up one night, hustled out of the city because of a coup d'etat that happened caused by Prospero's brother. This scene, the the acting problem it presents, particularly for the actor playing Prospero, but not only, is there is an enormous amount of lines. And as you say, all the exposition, or almost all the exposition, is done in this one scene. Now, talking about acting this scene, 
one of the one of the working principles we work on in class is that words are a response to a need. Okay. So that means if you have a lot of words, you have a lot of need. When you have an extraordinarily large amount of words, such as here, Prospero's need has to be extraordinarily large to call forth all these words. If, as an actor, you're going to make sense. Now, we can say dramaturgically, it's a scene about exposition, right? But not for the actor. The actor has to need all those words. So your job, if you're playing Prospero, is to find a need that is going to sustain you all through this scene, then into the scene with Ariel, then into the scene with Caliban. All of that has to come out of a working operational need. Another principle, and this is from Declan Donnellan's excellent book, The Actor and the Target. Donnellan states that all text seeks to change someone's perspective. And then he asks, are there exceptions? And he answers, no, there aren't. So if it's true that all text seeks to change perspective, what we have here is Prospero with a lot of text and every word of it is trying to change Miranda's perspective. Why is that so important? Yeah, yes. So that's the crux of the scene. Okay. So once you're there, then what we know is that Prospero, he retreated to his library and he was, as he says, wrapped in secret studies. He spent his time with his books. That was his true love. What he neglected was being the prince. He had worldly duties. He had politics that he needed to look to. And as the French say, if you don't do politics, politics will be done to you. So he then says to his brother, listen, can you, you handle, you know, there's a sewer issue over there and, and there's these civic things that have to happen. And there's a, would you go handle all that while I study? And that costs him. And he realizes that by this point. So he now knows that his daughter is going to go back to Milan and be the princess. But he has this in mind that she is going to have to rejoin the world, right? And he knows that she, once he effects the rescue, she is going to have to take over. He has to be sure that she is ready to go back to Milan and to become a princess and take on the leadership role that he failed at, actually. And so as he says, since we've been here, I have been your schoolmaster and we've made better use of it than kids that don't have such the tutors, not so careful, as he puts it. So that is a generating principle for a Prospero in the scene, that he has to be sure Miranda's ready. So then, he hasn't told her this story yet, but he says the very hours come. It's time. And one idea that you could use, each actor has to do it on his own, her own, but the idea being... Why does it happen now? I think it's, it's useful to think that the ship heading back from Tunis came a, like a couple of months before he thought it was going to come. Now, is this true? It doesn't matter. If you can get behind it, if you can say, oh my goodness, I wasn't quite ready. Because for an actor, it's always more useful to be off balance. It's always more useful not to know. It's almost always more useful to have something to lose in a scene. If you're what Donnellan calls, he calls it playing in two. I have this to win. I have this to lose. If you have nothing to lose or if you're sure of everything. So where's the action? What do you need to change? So no, you might, for example, one of the things I thought about playing Prospero was, you know, that page, that charm that causes storms, you know, I spilled some coffee on that page. <laughs> and some of the, I think I was, I think I got it right, but I'm not quite sure. And of course, I'm being slightly facetious. But did that book happen to drop into the ocean? And it, were, was the corner of that page obscured? And did he have to do some of that spell from memory? Right. And he's pretty sure he's right, but he's not 100% <laughs> sure. And so he has to keep checking on things. The whole interview with uh, Ariel, you know, 
tell me, is this what happened? Good. Okay. I got that right. Is this what, did you do this? Did you do that? And so he's, it's actively checking. And for Miranda, he's going through this long seminar, essentially on political science, on how to be a good prince and how not to be a good prince. And the presence of evil, mark me that a brother could be so perfidious, he says about Antonio. So the way we talk about it in class, and this is not unusual in Shakespeare, it's an extreme example, but it's not unusual. You think of it as a, a maybe a PowerPoint presentation, mm. right? So these images are being used not for themselves alone, not for the beauty of it, not for how warm and fuzzy it makes Prospero feel, not because it makes him feel clever. He's using these images and these specific cases to change Miranda. And so when we use a PowerPoint, what's important is the clarity of the image. Is the image effective in changing the audience? Another quotation out of Donnellan, it's not what you say, it's what, in this case, what she hears. Are you sure she's getting what you are saying? Hence all of those questions. Dost thou attend me? Thou attendst not. I pray thee, mark me. I pray thee, mark me. You've got to know this, and we don't have any time. He does say that a lot, and I think you've answered the question as to why he's saying that. But what I find interesting about the passages is that most of them end in a shared line. So he says, thou attendst not, and she says, oh, good, sir, I do, and then I pray thee, mark me. And usually when you hear shared lines, those people are on the same page, they're together. Yes, and John Hirsch has a really good take on that, and he says, why does Miranda's attention wander while her father tells her the entire family history? She is not bored, as she is sometimes played. The text just does not support this. Rather, she is mesmerized by the sea and the tempest her father has conjured up. And she says at the end of it, and now I pray you, sir, for still tis beating in my mind your reason for raising this sea storm. So if you're playing Miranda, you're trying to listen, and this amazing storm that has just happened may still be in your mind. You're also trying to figure out is why is dad behaving so strangely? <laughs> dad, what? What? Dad is really in a different gear than she has seen him. And, oh, sir, I do, don't you? Uh, I'm, I'm right with you. Tell me, tell me. Your tale, sir, would cure deafness. Why are you asking me if I'm listening to you? Of course I am. Prospero knows it's so important for his larger idea of training her for the role she has to take on and the fact that he's short on time. Mm. That action becomes so intense and so urgent, and those images that he's using, are he has to make them so clear for her to understand the nature of, of what statecraft is, what, what, the, the, what Prospero's mistake was, that, that evil exists in people, because she's going to need to know that if mm -hmm. she's going to rule in Melon. I would love to hear you read a little of this. Okay, where shall we? What I was thinking, Garrett, and we can flip a coin as to who plays Miranda, Garrett, but picking it up from my brother and thy uncle called Antonio. Okay. I pray thee, Marthy. And then just going through the end to Dost Thou Hear. That sounds great. I, I look okay. forward to hearing your rendition, Jim. Of okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've been nominated. <laughs> All right, here we go. My brother and thy uncle called Antonio. I pray thee, mark me, that a brother could be so perfidious. He whom next thyself of all the world I loved, and to him put the manage of my state, as at that time through all the signories it was the first, and Prospero, the prime duke, being so reputed in dignity and for liberal arts without a parallel. Those being all my study, 
the government I cast upon my brother, and to my state grew stranger, being transported and wrapped in secret studies. Thy false uncle, dost thou attend me? Sir, most heedfully. Being once perfected how to grant suits, how to deny them, who to advance, and who to trash for overtopping, you created the creatures that were mine, I say, or, or changed them, or else new formed them having both the key of officer and office, and set all hearts of the state to what tune pleased his ear, that now he was the ivy which had hid my princely trunk and sucked my verdure out on't. Thou attendst not? Oh, good sir, I, I do. I pray thee, mark me. I, thus neglecting worldly ends, all dedicated to closeness and the bettering of my mind with that which, but by being so retired, all prized or popular rate, in my false brother awaked an evil nature, and my trust, like a good parent, did beget of him a falsehood in its contrary as great as my trust was, which had indeed no limit, a confidence sans bound. He, being thus lorded, not only with what my revenue yielded, but what my power might else exact, like one who, having in truth by telling of it, made such a sinner of his memory to credit his own lie, he did believe he was indeed the duke. Out of the substitution and executing the outward face of royalty with all prerogative, hence his ambition growing. Dost thou hear? Great. Wow. This is fascinating because I can hear in your voice the urgency and you're painting the images, you know, you're hitting the words that you want her to hear. You're walking the walk that you talk. Well, yeah, in some ways it's the only way to get the scene active and interesting because the action is not about Prospero in relation to the history. It's the action is Prospero in relation to his daughter. As Donovan says, all text seeks to change perspective. And it gives you a drive and it keeps the, the words moving forward. It keeps the images moving forward. It keeps you moving forward. Right, because there's still more to get through. He's not done. No, and, he's not. And as an actor, it's not in the text, of course. You know, why does he get up when he does? He says, now I arise. Sit still. Right. Is it, does he have to arise because he needs to check, you know, across the dune? Right. Can you see what's going on out there? So you can make it that specific for yourself as an actor. And if we have time, there's one more thing about this that I'd like yes, to... Yes, without a doubt. The question becomes, right, then Ariel comes in, Miranda sleeps, and whether or not he puts her to sleep, editors argue about that. Most people play it that way. And then the scene with Ariel happens where he goes off really fast. He gets very hot with Ariel very quickly. Yep. So you need to justify why that is. Well, okay, we're short on time. I don't have time for this discussion right now. You know, do what I tell you. But then... Ariel goes away. He wakes up Miranda and he says, okay, time to go see Caliban. Yeah, why is that? Why? Yeah. So if you're playing Prospero, you need to know why your next move, why your next move is to go and see Caliban. So that scene between Caliban and Prospero is actually all about Miranda. He's got one more test to see if she's ready. So he takes her, he puts her alone in front of the cave mouth or whatever it is where Caliban's coming from. He puts her there and makes her stand there and he steps back and then he calls Caliban for it. Caliban comes out and she has to hold her ground alone while Caliban is threatening both of them. But if you make it that she is standing there holding her ground and then of course she lets Caliban have it at one point and 
people think, oh my goodness, Miranda can't say those most abhorred slave whom any print of goodness will not, you know, that speech. They say, oh my God, a sweet little girl would never say that. that, that that's a mistake. That has to be Prospero's speech. Mm. No, no, that's Miranda taking charge. That's her learning curve. When Prospero hears that, and the very next thing, once she says that, he shuts it down. He says, okay, good. You passed that test. And Ray, to go back to your fairy tale idea, oh, that's yes. her facing the monster. Her facing the monster, the troll under the bridge, however you want to pick your fairy tale. You know, fairy tales oftentimes are about growing up or moving from various stages of our development toward adulthood. And we see there in that scene when Miranda's the way I think it's really effective is for her to be standing there and he's threatening her. He knows he can't actually touch her, although he sure would like to, both in violence and in sexual violence, as he says, because Prospero is there backing her up. And that's what he's testing with her. Can she stand there with all this stuff coming at her from Caliban? And does she have the courage to stand there and take it? And then she turns around and says, don't tell me, you know, you deserve, you are deservedly under that rock. She takes control. At that point, she takes control. Prospero knows, okay, she understands now how the world works and she has that in. And then that scene ends and Ferdinand comes in and that, then we're moving on at that point. Fascinating. That is a possible arc to make that whole act one scene to work. So many wonderful things to play with in this relationship, which is probably the central relationship of the play. Yes, without a doubt, I think. But to bring it full circle, we spoke about um, actor training, and you've been mm -hmm. engaged as an actor and as a trainer of actors for, for a long time. What advice do you have for young actors that they are bound to ignore? Sort of in the... <laughs> in the <laughs> <laughs> well, the one piece of advice that cuts across is work on yourself. Since we all try to draw on ourselves, which is to say that every time we work in, in studio, on, in performance, in rehearsal, every time we get up in that magic place that, you know, where the magic happens, that we should be confessing something of ourselves. Not our idea of how the scene should go, not our idea of what the character is, not our idea of the play or the playwright, but something of ourselves as human beings. And so if you're going to do that, then the more interesting, complex, rigorous, extensive amplified uh, human being you are, the more you're going to have to draw from. And so as an actor, you know, working on uh, keeping your physical life, your intellectual life, your emotional life, what responsibilities have you chosen to carry with you, spiritual life, how are you growing as a person? And then have confidence that when, when a great play calls on you, there'll be something there to draw on. And there's a great line from, the, from William Butler Yeats in his poem, The Circus Animal's Desertion, where he says, players and painted stage took all my love and not the things that they were emblems of. Hmm. And so Yeats is cautioning against living your life only, pick your confined space, be it in the theater, be it you know, online, be it somewhere else, but to engage with the things that, that with reality with those things that actually do form us as human beings, because you're playing Hamlet, okay, then you better have something there to draw on. You better have some depth of character. You better be able to do that sword fight now that it's 11.15 on a two-show day. Mm -hmm. You better be that physically fit that you can do that, and you better have trained to be able to do that fight. 
So you need all of that. And that's the, the things that great plays and great roles call on. It asks everything you have, and then you leave stage knowing that it wasn't actually enough, but you get to try again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's marvelous advice. It brings to mind the Joseph Campbell quote, you're seeking the experience of being alive. And how do you find that? Yes, and then start with being alive yourself, and then as much as possible, confess what you know about being alive to your closest 350 friends. <laughs> Paid $50 each to watch you. Ray Dooley, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Gentlemen, really appreciate the work that you do, and so please keep going, and thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.